Good evening. No jets for Ukraine. Did the U.S. run a biowarfare lab in Ukraine? We speak with a journalist decrying censorship of pro-Russian views on social media and ecocide on the Lower East Side. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, says a maternity hospital has been destroyed by Russian airstrikes in the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol. The attack, which authorities say injured women in labor and left children in, re- in the wreckage, is the latest grim incident of the 14-day invasion that the Kremlin calls a special operation quote, to disarm its neighbor and dislodge leaders it calls neo-Nazis. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov responded, saying Russian forces do not fire on civilian targets. Meanwhile, diplomatic efforts continued. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, arrived in Turkey ahead of planned talks tomorrow with his Ukrainian counterpart, Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, in what will be their first meeting since the incursion. The United Nations nuclear watchdog chief is also flying to Turkey, strongly suggesting suggesting he would discuss nuclear safety with Lavrov and Kuleba. Ukraine's nuclear power plant operator expressed concern for safety at Chernobyl, mothballed site of the world's worst nuclear disaster in 1986. Kuleba said power cuts make radiation leaks imminent. Nevertheless, the International Atomic Energy Agency says there was enough cooling water sufficient for effective heat removal without need for electrical supply. Meanwhile, the economic fallout was being felt worldwide. Ukraine and Russia are huge exporters of food and metals, accounting for nearly a third of the global grain trade. Prices of food staples have soared worldwide. Ukraine said today it's halting key agricultural exports for the rest of the year. Russia, too, said it needed to maintain domestic supplies of grain. And in more news on the war's impact, global oil prices today posted their biggest plunge in two years after OPEC members said they would increase the supply of oil. Russia is the world's top exporter of crude and fuel, shipping around 7% of global supplies. Yesterday, President Joe Biden said the United States would stop buying Russian oil. Although the U.S. share of the Russian market is small, oil prices sharply rose in response before today's sudden decline. In Washington, the United States closed the door on supplying combat aircraft to Ukraine, saying that the intelligence community assessed it would be a high-risk move. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. Combat aircraft right now could be mistaken uh, by Mr. Putin and the Russians as an escalatory step. And as I said at the very end of my opening statement, we need to be careful about every decision we make, um, uh, that that we aren't making the potential for escalation worse. Because that's not only not good for NATO and it's not only not good for the United States and our national security, should this conflict escalate uh, even further, but it's certainly not going to be good for the Ukrainian people. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. The Pentagon decision came after a call between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Polish counterpart a day after Poland offered to transfer Russian-made fighter jets to U.S. custody for further transfer to Ukraine. Separately, the United States military announced it would reposition two Patriot missile batteries to Poland to proactively counter any potential threat to U.S. and NATO territory. In more news of the war in Ukraine, earlier this week, a spokesperson for Russia's Ministry of Defense accused the United States of helping Ukraine develop biological and chemical weapons. Based on a cache of documents, it says that forces seized during their operations. The documents appear to indicate the Ukrainian government ordered the destruction of the deadly pathogens on U.S. orders.
During the special military operation, we discovered evidence of the Kiev regime's urgent destruction of traces of a military biological program implemented in Ukraine and funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. We have received documentation from employees of Ukrainian biological laboratories concerning the urgent destruction on February 24th of highly dangerous pathogens of plague, anthrax, tularemia, cholera and other deadly diseases on February 24th. Yesterday, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Nuland admitted the existence of the biolabs to a question from Florida Republican Marco Rubio at a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where she turned the revelation around as proof of Russian biowar intentions. I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Ukraine has biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda the groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100 percent it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland. But today, a Kremlin Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Maria Zakharova, demanded answers from the United States. She also noted that while the U.S. has long accused nations like Syria and Iraq of harboring bioweapons, it's interesting they were found in Ukraine. We found during the special military operation that confirmed the Kiev regime attempted to cover up biological programs traces as implemented by Kiev and financed by the United States of America. There was no peaceful use whatsoever, no research use whatsoever intended for the good of peace. They were financed from the U.S. Ministry of Defense. The starting point of our position is that the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. President's administration should notify the international community in an official manner rather than through their speaking heads familiarize the international community with the programs carried out in Ukraine. We remember how many years and their attempts uh, while spilling blood to find biological and chemical weapons throughout the world, while in fact occupying killing people. They were looking in the wrong place. We have found instead of you. We have found your own products. We have found your biological material. It was developed primarily for military purposes. As it turns out, it was all happening in Ukraine. What were you doing there? It's a different continent. It has no borders with you. This is something we have been warning of for many years. The Russian leadership made such statements on a continuous basis by asking questions. We are not asking now, we are demanding now, and the world is watching. 
Kremlin Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova. This afternoon, John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesperson, rejected Russia's demand, while again implying without evidence it was Russia that was planning biological warfare. The Russian accusations are absurd. They're laughable. In the words of my Irish Catholic grandfather, a bunch of malarkey. There's nothing to it. It's classic Russian propaganda. If I were you, I I wouldn't give it a drop of ink worth paying attention to. Has there been any relationship between the... We are not, not developing biological or chemical weapons inside Ukraine. It's not happening. Yeah. Thanks, John. Go ahead. Go ahead. Are you concerned that, that, that Russia is actually doing this because they're planning some sort of a, a chem biological? Yeah, court, I mean, again, not being perfectly inside the minds of the Russians, we have seen one of their playbooks is to accuse the other that which you are doing or which you plan to do. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby, a little memorable of George Orwell turning things on their head. The war of words has been escalating since the long-simmering war between Ukraine and Russia exploded last month. Sources in the United States and Russia have been accusing each other of censoring news from the battlefront. That means silencing differing views on the Internet, while Russia has accused Facebook of being the one doing the censoring. Facebook has begun fact-checking what it says are misleading claims published by Russia – on their agency known as RT or Russian – it used to be called Russian TV. It's known as RT and uh, other state media. Facebook is apparently doing far more, though, than fact-checking Russian news agencies. RT reporter Caleb Mopin says his organization has been driven out of business in the United States by economic sanctions that caused the news outlet to close its U.S. affiliate, RT America, because it no longer pay its bills due to all the financial sanctions against Russia. I have been a guest many times on RT, so I want to give you that information before we go to this interview with Caleb Mopin. Well, RT America is unable to continue functioning. Uh, they've been dropped from every uh, TV you know, broadcast network. Uh, they're unable to get their bank transfers to pay for their continued operations. RT America has shut down. I and all other RT America employees received a layoff letter. The company is no longer functioning. We've ceased operations. In addition to that, the European Union has outlawed RT. It's, it's illegal to broadcast it in the European Union. A number of countries have also outlawed it. Social media has also stepped in. And in the European Union, you can't look at RT on YouTube. You can't look at RT on Facebook. Uh, You can't look at RT on Telegram. And even in the United States, I can't get access to the Telegram channel of RT. It's been blocked. All across social media, they have made basically a policy that Russian content cannot be monetized. Channels are being shut down. My personal Twitter account has nothing to do with Russia, has nothing to do with RT. It's my personal Twitter account used for my personal tweets. No one in Russia tells me what to tweet. has nothing to do with with any company. It's my personal Twitter has been labeled as Russian state-affiliated media by Twitter. And I consider that to be, a, you know, slander and also to be, you know, uh, I mean, it's an attack on my, my integrity as a journalist. I mean, you know, I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. And this has happened to a number of other people. Uh, my good friend Donald Quarter, who's a reporter from New Jersey, and he's in Russia reporting on the conflict. He was in Rostov right on the border, and he was re- reporting on it. They also built his Twitter as Russian state-affiliated media. Both of us are U.S.-born citizens. What they're doing right now to Russian media is ridiculous. When there's a, a conflict going on, it's important that you hear the other side of the story. I mean, it's just pretty basic. I'm watching it right now on YouTube. From Moscow. RT is still functioning in Moscow. You can watch it from Moscow. And, uh, you know, I've been doing some reporting. I've been able to, you know, record from my home and send some videos in about the U.N. meetings and stuff. 
stuff. But uh, the company, RT America, that used to be my employer, that used to have Americans here reporting on U.S. events and giving U.S. perspectives is no longer operating. It's shut down. All employees laid off. What are we missing? What do you think are the big stories that have come from Russia that were truthful stories that we missed out on because of that? The chemical weapons lab, I think that's a big one. The fact that there were chemical weapons laboratories in Ukraine set up by the United States. And now, I mean, it's not just Russian sources that are saying this. Victoria Newland has testified to this fact on the floor of Congress now, that Ukraine had chemical weapons facilities that were set up in coordination with the U.S. government before this conflict. I mean, you want to talk about a threat. I mean, could you imagine if a country that was hostile to the United States, uh, you know, was in Mexico setting up chemical weapons facilities? Wouldn't we have an issue with that. Uh, the USA invaded Iraq because they, you know, saying they had weapons of mass destruction and they didn't. And now we know that Ukraine did have weapons of mass destruction and the U.S. government was working with them to set them up. That's a big story and you're not hearing anything about it in American media. What stories have you been working on that you feel have been uh, blocked because of uh, these regulations? The most infuriating thing is I continue to hear people say that this is an unprovoked action by Russia, or this is because Putin wants to restore the Soviet Union, or Putin doesn't like NATO expanding. Nobody knows about the shelling that has gone on for the past eight years against the peoples of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, in these two regions, in the Donbass, uh, the people there, they declared independence after the 2014 U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the Ukrainian government. They declared independence, and since then, the government in Kiev has been bombing them, it has been shelling them, it has been purchasing drones from Turkey and conduct conducting drone strikes against them, and roughly 14,000 people have died in the Donbass region since 2008. That's a lot of people. 14,000 is a lot of people. They have a memorial in Lugansk uh, to all the children who have died in the fighting. They call it Angels Road, Angels Avenue. That's kind of, kind of how it translates. It's the pictures of all the children under the age of 12 who have died because of the shelling and bombing. And this whole time, these eastern regions have been asking Russia to recognize them. And Russia has said, no, we want you to be part of Ukraine. We want Ukraine to just treat you decently. We want you to be reintegrated back into Ukrainian society as autonomous regions. That's what Ukraine agreed to do at the Minsk Accords. They signed an agreement. They said they were going to recognize and reintegrate these eastern regions where the people there are Russian-speaking, etc. The Ukrainian government hasn't done that. Instead, it's just continued bombing and shelling them. Eight years is a long time to wait. People are being bombed for eight years. People have a food barricade against them for eight years. Eight years, 14,000 dead. At some point, Russia has to draw the line and say, hey, you want our recognition? We're going to recognize you and we're going to protect you. You wouldn't even know that this has been going on. You know, I've heard CNN commentators and CNN analysts say Ukraine was a peaceful country until now. No, it's been a very violent country since 2014 when the United States overthrew the Ukrainian government. Russia is not starting this war. Russia is trying to end an eight-year war. There's been a conflict going on in Ukraine for eight years, and Russia is trying to end it. RT America reporter Caleb Maupin, he spoke with WBAI today. Caleb Maupin is an excellent and independent reporter, good friend. As I mentioned earlier, I've appeared as a source of many news programs on RT America. But understanding the causes of the war doesn't mean that one approves of an invasion. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Opening statements today in the trial of four men accused of plotting to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer offered contrasting narratives in one of the nation's most important cases of violent extremism. Kidnapping Whitmer was part of what plotters hoped would trigger a second civil war 
That's what prosecutors told the jurors. Defense lawyers have said there was no plot and that their clients were merely using coarse language to voice complaints about the government's response to the pandemic. Six members of the alleged conspiracy were charged in federal court with kidnapping conspiracy in October 2020. Eight others were facing charges in related cases pending in state courts. Prosecutors in October 2020 said FBI agents thwarted a plot to bomb a bridge near Whitmer's vacation home, kidnap the governor and have her stand trial for treason. The group also mulled abandoning Whitmer, who prosecutors say was referred to as a tyrant B-I-T-C-H, in the middle of Lake Michigan as punishment for her leadership during the pandemic. A former federal prosecutor, Matthew Schneider, says the alleged crime was over the top and the trial will be one of the most important political prosecutions in recent memory. How often does somebody get charged for attempting or conspiring to kidnap a governor? It just doesn't happen. So because of that significance, It's a huge case. Some people might not like Governor Whitmer, and I understand that some people might love Governor Whitmer. But the issue is, is as the judge said in this case, this isn't a polling place. This is a courthouse. And the issue is, no matter how you feel about the governor, did these defendants violate the law? Defense attorneys argue the men were set up by an FBI informant and they lack the resources and knowledge to carry out what were fundamentally empty threats. And in local news, Governor Kathy Hochul, governor of New York State, announced the newest employees of the state's Snug Street Outreach Program will be deployed to sites throughout New York State. Hochul met with the new staff and delivered virtual remarks at the team training today. The program, part of Hochul's overall plan to tackle gun violence, focuses on community engagement, including mediating conflicts, mentoring youth, and providing counseling and support to address trauma resulting from long-term exposure to gun violence. She also promised 13 million dollars to bring federal and state law enforcement and joint anti-gun task forces, she says, will focus on data-driven policing. Law enforcement sometimes works in silos. The locals are doing this, the state's doing this, the feds are doing this, the FBI and ATF and others. People all have intelligence. They know what's going on. They know who the players are, but they're not sharing the information. So we said in working with the mayor of New York and the mayors across New York State, Let's bring it all together. Common purpose. No reason to have our own turf battles when we have to be fighting the battles in the streets. So our objective is to use data and analysis, find out where the highest rates of uh, gun violence are, the highest incidents of crime are uh, occurring right now, and to also deploy people like yourselves to those very neighborhoods. We also talked about how we can keep guns off the streets. In January, I launched the first in the nation consortium on illegal guns. We have representatives in law enforcement from nine states, plus the NYPD, Boston PD, and the federal ATF. Never before have they been brought together toward a common purpose, which is finding the guns and stopping them before they get to our streets. Because 90, I'm sorry, 80% of the guns used in New York, they came from another street. They came from another place. They came from another state. So making investments in the human intelligence, information gathering, analysis, and using technology is another way we're going to continue fighting uh, criminal activity. So we're going to be adding even more money to that $13 more million there. And that's Governor Kathy Hochul. This Snug Street Outreach Program, administered by the State Division of Criminal Justice Services, treats gun violence as a public health issue by identifying the source, interrupting its transmission, and treating it by engaging individuals and communities to change community norms about violence. 
even closer to home here in New York City, it was pouring rain, as many of us discovered by going out or just looking out the window. As an expected snowfall in the city melted as it hit the ground. But the wet weather wasn't lost on Mayor Eric Adams. He was under a tent at a news conference in southeast Queens today, announcing the completion of a nearly $50 million sewage and water main overhaul. The Department of Environmental Protection Project brings six miles of new sewers and water mains to the neighborhood of Rochdale. The mayor said you should not have to cross your fingers and hope you don't have human waste that is flooded into your basement, among other climate-related problems hitting coastal city areas. People who cannot get their jobs to the morning because of problems, losing all of your property because of the flooding that you see and witness uh, in your basements. And so we said no more to that. And I want the people of Queens to know uh, when you look up and see rain clouds, uh, things are going to be okay because we're going to make sure that water does not settle in your community and on your streets. This is a six miles of new sewers and water mains to Rochdale. So important on what this uh, project has accomplished. New catch basins, new curbs and sidewalks, better roads. This is a total transformation of having to receive the complaints year after year. And we're improving the quality of life and making this community more resilient in our fight against climate change. And that's the mayor earlier today. The project includes over 5,500 feet of new storm sewers and 55 new catch basins, among other upgrades. Adams also announced a joint initiative with Habitat for Humanity to demolish or rehab 13 vacant city-owned buildings in the neighborhood and converting them into 16 new eco-friendly homes. The mayor, though, was not present at another news conference this morning at East River Park on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. There, activists and politicians met to decry the uprooting of nearly a thousand trees as part of a coastal resiliency project that's been actively opposed by environmentalists and many residents of the adjoining neighborhood. Closed in stages, the trees are being cut down prior to the addition of about 10 feet of landfill that will permanently change the character of the park. One activist called it a land grab. and ESCR is a land grab. What is happening here? Deforestation of Manhattan. Violence to our more than human kin and to our communities. Lack of transparency and oversight. Lack of any mitigation for the harmful effects of the now uncovered toxic soil blowing daily into our neighborhoods. While the FDR runs freely, while new towers for a wider, wealthier neighborhood are being pushed through in all of the adjacent neighborhoods. This is catastrophe. This is criminal. A newly elected city council member representing the neighborhood, Chris Marty, a rare opponent of the project in City Hall, says the city has been slowing down construction on the site as protests diminished and then sending workers in when protests reemerge, making him wonder how necessary this project really was. Defend our trees. And we call this for what it was, ecocide. But I also think is a city bluffing. Right? They wanted to be here two weeks ago to take down these trees. And when we called them out to say that they didn't have the permit to do so, and more importantly, that they don't need to cut down these trees, they pushed back. And now they're going to try again next week. 
and what we're going to do as a city council office alongside with the activists and advocates here is continue to push back because we can't kill any more trees. Yes. We see announcements of social media saying how our city is going to add thousand, a million more trees to the city. That's a lie. Why sacrifice 500? Right. This is all a PR stunt because the city knows what they're doing. Yes. They're allowing yeah. real estate industry to take up our land, oh, yeah. our community, and our grounds for their profit. Oh, yes. But we will continue to stand, we will continue to fight, because with a new administration, I think there's new hope. And so we have to keep on pushing forward and correct the wrongs that happened in the last administration. So I'm here with a candidate start running for office knowing that we need these people to get into office to continue to grow this momentum and save our trees. Thank you again. City Council member Chris Marty. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer, Tracy Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.